You are listening to CS Book Club. Today we're talking about Chapter 9 of Understanding Computation, Programming in Toyland. I'm Justin Campbell. With me is Aston Harris. Hey, how you doing? Amy Unger. Hey, everyone. And Brian Cobb. Hello. This... So what is Toyland? What is Toyland? Good question. Yeah, I kind of thought it was an interesting uh, title for the chapter because I was... I was imagining that we were going to build some weird, I don't know, uh, toy or, uh, I don't know, some sort of world in which fake dolls could interact. I don't know how this would really relate, but I thought it was a programming exercise when I first uh, looked at the table of contents. But it's actually a really kind of interesting way to think about abstraction and how simple you can make something. Yeah, I guess the Toyland analogy was programming with this fake version of, or or the values are essentially like fake values of real things that give you the ability to to prove things or at least find find some answers. Yeah, I think it's kind of an interesting analogy too because so much depends on that choice. You have to choose correctly how to make something as simple as it can be. You know, you look at a Raggedy Ann doll and, you know, it's a collection of fabric and some really weird cords for hair. And But it, it still appears human, right? And so it's an interesting analogy for, you know, introducing a topic where you have to think very hard about what is the simplest way or what can you throw out in order to still retain something that actually has meaning. Yeah, the map was a good metaphor, I thought. Yeah. Um, whereby, like, kind of giving up a first-person perspective of what you will actually see when you're going somewhere. You can literally, at a higher level, plan out a route and um, avoid a lot of frustration by if you were only using your, like, site to guide yourself in an unknown place. My favorite part about the route metaphor is that he says a route will... Uh, it tell us where to turn, but not which lane to drive in. It's like, ah, uh, Google Maps does that for me. <laughs> okay, Mr. Computer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the example of um, looking at the signs of numbers as a way to learn about maybe not the exact computation, but like the nature of a computation. Like, it, will this number be positive or negative? Uh, looking at the sign is, is like a, it's kind of a heuristic and um, sometimes interesting in its own right to you. So I don't know. I, it's a good example because it's not terribly uh, like useful day to day, but you can imagine how it might be useful in like, I don't know, a physics engine or something where like maybe you don't want to multiply two giant numbers together, but by looking at the signs, you know, like, my little graphic should turn around now. Hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of us will do some degree of this too in just the order of precedence of the operations we choose to do. There's plenty of filtering things you can do to make sure that you don't do extra work. So, you know, if you're asked to compare two strings and see are they anagrams of each other, well, you can just first check to make sure they're the same length. Right. Otherwise, they're certainly not. And, you know, there are many, many things I can think of that I do in my own applications to make sure that I do the simplest thing first. 
before I even deal with the intricacies of the problem I'm trying to solve. I think I I liked the way they introduced the concept of uh, unknown. That was that was nice to see that uh, you know for most options we can we can say that's true or say we can say something, but otherwise just let the user know. Yeah, we don't know yet. Or it's not knowable. Like you you can't know for sure. Well, I suppose with for most of these, right, with more information, if if you could do the calculation, and I suppose we're all uh, supposed to imagine as if addition and multiplication are incredibly comp so complex that they're almost impossible program uh, problems. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, without more information, they are unknown. And just on a Ruby note, I, I liked. Um overriding less than or equals as like a kind of like set comparison or like set element operation. Stuff like that just kind of makes me happy. That's one of those, something that I really like about Ruby in particular is that that, that is possible. Yeah, it was really cool using the, um, what are they called again? Operators. It was really cool when they were using the uh, operators to like redefining add and subtract and uh, multiplication for for the signs themselves. Right. And I really like towards the end of this how we use it to uh, prove the sum of squares um, function. Essentially, we can't produce every known input to the sum of squares, but we can produce every sign for the input. Right. And by doing that, and then uniquing the result, we, we see that some of the squares can only ever produce a positive or zero, uh, which is kind of cool. That's very clever. Yeah, I think a lot of the examples in this chapter were really fun to think about all the work that would go into finding the exact right simplification. Because, you know, I'm not a incredibly dumb, dumb person, but that would not immediately appear to me as the way to prove this, right? That I'm sure someone uh, who does a lot more of this, you know, that would be obvious. But to me, that's not the simplification that would immediately come to mind. Right, right. You might think first, like, okay, well, like, what if I could do this with every number? <laughs> and, you know, that's... I'm, there probably is, like, a brute force proof that way, but it's just so much more elegant to, like, abstract to the concept of a sign and say like well every number has a sign there are three possible signs and i can very easily determine like every possible sign that would come out of this qed what is qed uh it stands for like so it has been like it has been shown or it has been demonstrated yeah, so it's like quod era demonstratum or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I always forget what the E stands. It's like er era or erat or. I don't yeah, know. well, it's some era. tense of it's. Yeah, it's some tense of is. Ashton, do you speak Latin? No, I don't. But I looked it up. It's which had okay. to be proven. <laughs> uh, Took two years of Latin. That's about it. More than my zero. I just draw a little square box at the end of my proofs. I think I saw QED while learning about Idris. Hmm. I think that's part of it. So then after we 
do computations on the signs of numbers instead of numbers themselves. I thought that was a really good introduction to essentially how types work. We are assigning, you know, some attributes to a value. Uh, in this case, it's type, and then using similar semantics to make judgments about what can, what output will be produced, and also like what what is valid input. Right. Like I suppose if to if you wanted to extend the previous section, you could maybe have you could check statically that like your program wouldn't produce a negative number, but. Interestingly, the chapter goes on to just to talk about more like traditional uh, type systems. Yeah. Although, then again, to like backtrack on what I just said, I mean, the last example of the last chapter was showing that like that program wouldn't produce um, a negative number, although more by way of like proving that it wouldn't than like analyzing it, you know, parse or compile time that it wouldn't. Anyway. Yeah. It's interesting also to see the limits of what our fake type system can do and and the sorts of things that it can or cannot deduce. So we're learning Scala at work for a brief uh, journey into Scala land later this month. And it's interesting to try to take some of my Java debugging skills and try to apply them to Scala because Java will complain about more things than Scala will. So it, it's interesting to see with the context of this chapter that, hey, maybe some of Scala's ability to guess at types has improved and, and to understand the chain of reasoning. Did you all go through the exercise and make the type system in code or just read the chapter? I didn't write the code, but I played around with the source from the GitHub repo. Oh, okay. Um, I just read it, and I kind of wish that I played with it a little bit. Yeah, I only read it as well. I think mostly what I liked was um, kind of like building up little expressions that would result in types. Um, you know, like a less than expression takes two numbers and returns a Boolean. Like that was just kind of fun. Um, or like things that don't produce things that aren't valid would produce no type. Um, I don't know why that felt like so fun, but just building that little layer was, um, yeah, it's kind of fun to screw around with on the command line. I thought um, going through this, I, I, I just remember like when I first saw like C or C++, I would see like functions that returned or that had like void, a type void. And it would be like a setter or something. And I never quite, I just kind of accepted that as something to cargo cult to everything. Huh. Uh, but there's a little, he has a paragraph that's like, uh, you know, handle a statement as, a, as an inert expression, assume they don't return a value. And, a, you know, like that alone was like, that's like a good explanation of why it would be void. It's like, it just does a thing. <laughs> But it doesn't like its return value is not meaningful. Its purpose is to do something, and then being able to encode that in the type system. I thought it was interesting to see how the connection from the type system to uh, 
library's like quick check for Haskell um, was made at the end of the chapter. And some of the interesting applications that he talks about for systems like quick check in um, the Airbus and the International Space Station systems. There's a picture of, um, I think, Margaret Hamilton with the stack of printed out code for the the first shuttle flight, I think it was, and it's taller than she is. Uh, and so I always think about how much of a pain it must have been to debug that <laughs> and to to make sure that that worked. Yeah, let alone perform static analysis on it. Yeah, and it it's funny to think within just that context how much you know, a type system doesn't save you if the meaning of the data within your types um, doesn't align. Most of our types are determined based off of how much memory they'll need. But if you talk about something where, you know, it, sure, it's a float, but is it Fahrenheit or Celsius or is it meters or yards, that you know, <laughs> that stuff is not in most of our type systems, even though it's in kind of the type system we have in our head, our system of units. Yeah, that's always like uh, one the most um, the examples of Haskell that resonate the most with me are where it's like not possible to compile programs because you've encoded, like you can encode uh, enough semantics into the type system that like, many classes of programs that would have invalid semantics won't compile. And, you know, that would eliminate, like, I think then a space shuttle would explode because there was a, you know, one team of scientists was using metric system, the other was using... Yep. yep. What, what is it called? Is it Imperial? The other one? Anyway. Yeah, something, something that refers to the English system. So yeah. I think it's Imperial. The Queen but. system. But yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is interesting to see how these things can evolve from something that is just initially based off of the first, you know, high level programs that we think of as now lower level, you know, see it, it needs to know how much memory to allocate. It's not that it cares too much that, you know, your number and your Boolean are, uh, are different and they're not going and you might have problems compiling or problems running the program it's going to fail to compile because it's allocating one amount of data and you're assigning a different amount of data to that smaller spot mm -hmm. and now we're using them for you know as you say in haskell and then to a certain degree with the more advanced type more uh, complex types that aren't necessarily as tied to memory. Um, we're seeing that kind of evolve to be something that's more useful for making sure we don't make dumb mistakes. Here's to making fewer dumb mistakes. Here, here. So any final thoughts on uh, the chapter, or I guess the book in general? I feel like it was a really uh, good overview for me of a lot of computer science basics of like how to how to understand computation i definitely feel like uh it was worth reading for myself i would definitely agree with that i mean it brought up a 
lot of concepts that I've never heard of or even thought of before. And um, there may be a couple that I can, you know, directly apply to my day-to-day work. A lot of them are more abstract and things that are just good to think about and probably just problem-solving skills that I can work on. Um, But in general, I like just understanding that these things exist and when situations arise where I can use them, I know they're there. Every problem I see now, my my hammer for the nail is a state machine. <laughs> Everything's a state machine. Yeah, I absolutely agree. This was a good read. Mind expanding. I liked it quite a bit. Yeah, it was definitely fun to see all the different ways that you can model some of these more abstract concepts very practically. I mean, not that the application would be practical, but, you know, I could write the code that built a Turing machine, which is really cool. Yeah. I have yet to convince my boss that because we can abstract so much and still retain the the meaning, um, that that means we should dump all of our... Uh, occasionally failing tests. <laughs> Keep fighting the good fight. I know, right? It's so sad. I mean, I would settle for also dumping all CSV support or all date-time support, but none of those strategies seem to be useful to him. I think he just needs to read the book. <laughs> Alright, well, if you've listened to all of these episodes. Thank you very much. And uh, check out csbookclub.com to see what we're going to do next. Thanks, everybody. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.